Hi, welcome back to Help with Parkinson's. Today we're doing episode number nine. My guest today is Dr. Subramanian from Hershey Medical Center. And Dr. Sub has a new guest for us today he'll introduce you to. This is Warren Butfenick, and welcome to our show. Yes, I have uh, Joe Malone, uh, who's a neurology resident uh, in the Penn State Neurology Program. He's very interested in uh, movement disorders and choosing uh, movement disorders as a carrier. So welcome, Joe. Good afternoon, Dr. Sue. Thanks for having me. Yes. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Warren. It's a pleasure to be here. You're welcome. Okay, so uh, I had an idea today of having something, kind of a fast-moving program about misconceptions in Parkinson's disease. And uh, just an example, I'll give one that people say, well, if it's not the shakiness, it can't be Parkinson's. Or I can't have Parkinson's because I'm not shaking. And uh, Joe, you want to bring up something about that? So classically, we think of Parkinson's with a tremor, but sometimes it can manifest very subtly initially, like especially with um, uh, smaller handwriting, for example, what we call micrographia, um, or things such as difficulty with even buying up your, uh, your dress shirts or things of that nature. As uh, 30% of patients may not actually have the tremor upon initial presentation too, something to consider. Right. So, uh, uh, so that's a great point, uh, Warren and Joe, that you brought up. Uh, patients often think that not having tremor does not mean that they don't have Parkinson's disease or that it means that they don't have Parkinson's disease. Uh, but we know, as Joe correctly said, that some patients do not manifest with Parkinson's disease. Although I would say that vast majority do. Um, vast majority have what we call unilateral Parkinson's. Parkinson's only affecting one side of the body. So uh, the tremor may be just a very subtle finding, or it might be just showing up on only one hand, or it might be in a hand that is less dominant. So you're right-handed and you have tremor in your left hand, you might disregard it for a very long time because it doesn't really bother you and it's very, very minor. And so then you would just blow it off. Um, so if you look carefully and uh, take a good careful history and examine people very carefully, most people do have tremor, but some don't. Uh, and when they don't have, the diagnosis is much harder to make because uh, one of the key things that allows you to make a strong diagnosis is having unilateral tremor. So having unilateral tremor or one-sided tremor is a very strong indication, especially the type of tremor that we call rusting tremor, is a very, very strong indication. It has a very high sensitivity and specificity, almost 90% specificity and sensitivity. And these are measures that we use to um, accurately diagnose the disease. Um, the chance that you would make an error is low if you had it. But having said that, um, Warren raises a very interesting point, which is people who don't have it or who have been missed, meaning they don't think it's very serious, it's just a mild tremor, may think that they don't have Parkinson's. And in that case, you have to use other measures. So for example, being slow, uh, which we call bradykinesia. Brady meaning slow, kinesis meaning movement. So slow movement is often um, a very strong indication of Parkinson's as well. The second strongest indicator is the bradykinesia. Uh, so if you have bradykinesia, and there are many ways in which we measure it, one is the finger tapping test and the alternate supination pronation test where we ask the patient to hold their hands out straight and they uh, flip the hand from being 
and the top-down position versus the other position, uh, like you're catching water versus uh, dropping it down on the floor kind of position. And we do that rapidly. And the speed at which you do this or how slow you are in doing this may be an indication of early Parkinson's. You can also see, as Joe said, uh, with some difficulties in commonly done activities, for example, handwriting being slow or uh, being a small, uh, that can also be an indication of early Parkinson's. Uh, or other things, for example, putting on buttons, taking off buttons, putting mascara on, uh, putting lip liner on, doing your hair, uh, doing um, other chores that you do on a daily basis, like cutting food, um, cleaning utensils, or uh, walking, or reduced arm swing, for example. Uh, these can be early signs of Parkinson's that can be easily missed if it's not carefully observed and taken care of. So um, I hope Warren and I gave a little overview of what things can be missed uh, as early signs of Parkinson's disease. Sure. So I guess the takeaway from that is if somebody comes to, a, to me or somebody other than a movement disorder doctor and says, I have one, one hand is shaking, one hand's not, I I'm, I'm feel a little stooped over, I feel like a one-sided, what do you think I should do? You, you should recommend them to go to a movement disorder doctor. Definitely. Instead of a neurologist, like from, for a MS or something like that. Right. So uh, I agree. Uh, so first of all, you should definitely go to your primary care doctor and bring this up with the primary doc care doctor, your family doctor, or somebody you should definitely go see them first because there are other diseases that can mimic Parkinson's disease. And uh, the primary care doctor can usually easily screen for these things. For example, they can check your thyroid, make sure that the thyroid is not uh, too high. Uh, that's a common condition, what we call thyrotoxicosis, that can produce tremors. Uh, there are also medications that you may be on, for example, uh, inhaling medications for asthma. Asthma drugs can make you have tremors. Steroids can make you have tremors. So these kind of things can be there, and uh, that can be easily checked. And most commonly checked uh, uh, diseases are easy to check, meaning uh, the, the tests are easily available, can be done in, in short order by any family doctor. So you should definitely have them check you. And if they feel, no, this is Parkinson's, then you should definitely ask for a referral to a movement disorder specialist, um, the nearest movement disorder specialist uh, to, located to you. Your family doctor should know that, and they should refer them that way. Now, if there's a long wait and you're anxious to get it checked sooner, you could see a, a local neurologist if you wanted to go that route. But it's generally better, as Warren was saying a few minutes ago, that your initial diagnosis is done by a specialist because the specialists have more knowledge about um, the disease than a general neurologist. Um, however, there are very good general neurologists who are also knowledgeable and who may be able to diagnose Parkinson's disease accurately by looking for these subtle signs. Uh, so I don't think it's always one or the other, but if you have access to a movement disorder specialist, you certainly should go to that one. Good. And uh, another issue was people look at Robin Williams and they say, is that going to be my future? Am I going to end up so depressed that I'm going to end up harming myself? But right. that actually is probably not really Parkinson's disease that he had. Right. People don't so, realize that. Right. So Robin Williams actually was diagnosed with a slightly different condition. Um, he's a wonderful actor, uh, great guy. Uh, he acted in 
uh, one of the best known movies about Parkinson's disease called Awakening. Uh, and it's a wonderfully acted, beautiful movie. And it was a great, talented artist. Uh, he was diagnosed with a disease called Lewy body disease, LBD. Lewy body disease is very similar to Parkinson's disease. And there's debate in the, in the research arena whether the two are different diseases or the same. However, in practice, in real life, when you meet patients with Lewy body disease, it's really a different condition. And let's talk about some of the differences. The first difference is that Lewy body disease typically affects the memory very early in the disease. So people with Parkinson's disease, and a good example of classic Parkinson's disease is Michael J. Fox, another famous actor, and people know about him and he's a public figure. So Michael J. Fox has had disease for more than 20 years now. And as you can tell, he's not that much cognitively impaired. So um, unlike that, uh, Lewy body disease frequently affects cognition. So what does that mean? People tend to become forgetful. They tend to misplace things. They don't remember details. Uh, they make common silly mistakes with uh, things such as driving or uh, remembering how to take their medicines or remembering people's names. These type of things frequently occur. Another common thing with uh, Lewy body disease is that they have visual hallucinations. They start seeing things that are not there. A commonest visual hallucination that they have is to see a bunny rabbit, and typically a red bunny rabbit, or a mouse that's not there. And usually they have insight. They usually know that it's not real, but they see it. So having visual hallucinations and memory loss is very common in Lewy body disease. And usually this happens within the first year that they came down with Parkinson's symptoms, such as tremor or slowness and so on and so forth. So in general, Lewy body disease has got early involvement of memory and cognition. Now, Robin Williams is a very special situation. As many of you know his career, Robin was a very astute, high-functioning uh, artist who had a very, uh, very, very significant uh, public profile. So people in Hollywood knew him. He already had many investments, many companies. He was, a, um, he was the PR phase of his uh, family. He and his wife had a, a very high involvement in lots of different things in the in Los Angeles area. And he was uh, frequently cited in many sporting events and so on and so forth, uh, etc. So when you have even mild cognitive impairment, it becomes very noticeable. Uh, it becomes very omnipresent. People notice it and start asking questions. So as a result, uh, it uh, made him very self-conscious. He became a recluse. He started not going out as often as he, he used to. And this compounded his disabilities. Uh, it also uh, didn't help that he was in the 40% of people who also developed depression. Um, Robin Williams also has a history of having had depression even before he came down with the Lewy body disease. So it didn't help that it also got compounded. So it was a combination, a rare combination of a, a public figure who had a lot of uh, PR and uh, this uh, was compounded by depression as well as uh, the public perception of disability, which really didn't help him either. 
Now, not everybody deals with the depression the same way that Robin Williams dealt with. There are other people with devastating illnesses. A good example is Christopher Reeves, who is another movie actor with a big profile. He was acted as Superman in many movies. And then he fell down and he broke his neck and he became quadriplegic. But he and his wife decided to fight a different battle, um, even though there were many reasons to become depressed and not become publicly um, uh, PR-wise. But they fought it in a different battle and they got into rehab. And many of you remember his interviews with Larry King on CNN, where he came in and gave a talk about how he has to fight the disease. And he, he, he fought the battle for several years before he eventually succumbed to complications. So anyway, the point is that um, Robin Williams had a different disease. It's not Parkinson's. And his depression was compounded by his public figure, as well as the issues that he had to do deal with as a public figure. This is not common parlance. Not all of us are movie actors and not, not all of us have the same public relations issues. And even if he had public relations issues, there are better ways to deal with than the way he handled it. So it's unfortunate uh, that he couldn't handle it and it led to his eventual suicide. But that's not what happens to everybody. Okay. And probably the biggest misconception, especially for people that read up a lot about their disease, is saying, I'm going to hold off getting treated for my Parkinson's as long as possible because I only have six years of drug therapy in my brain and then it's going to stop working. That's, that's, that's a complete misconception. Isn't that true, Dr. Sue? Correct. Uh, that, this is probably the biggest myth there is that treatment has to be procrastinated, delayed, uh, because you only have X number of years that you can survive the disease or, or that the medications is going to lose its steam, uh, which is another common myth is that it'll stop working. This is not true at all. Uh, there have been very good research about this. There have been very good studies about it. Um, there is one famous study, which is called Eladopa study, E-L-L-O-D-O-P-A, Eladopa study. This was funded by our tax dollars. The National Institute of Health paid for it. It was one of the largest studies of Parkinson's disease. So in this study, they actually asked that question. They said, okay, if you delay treatment, don't give any treatment, versus gave treatments of three different doses of levodopa, carbidopa, one of the medicines that we use frequently, does it lose steam, A, and B, does it cause toxicity? Does it cause further damage? And it turned out that uh, these patients were followed for the about 48 months, two years, that people who didn't get treatment clearly did poorly. Um, they got worsened. And people who got treatment, and especially people who took the lowest dose of medicine, half tablet three times a day, uh, they did really well. They didn't have any complications of therapy. They didn't have any side effects for the first two years. Now, these patients have been followed for much longer time now. Uh, the study was completed way back in the early 2000s, so now many of them have completed close to 10 years. And follow-up studies have shown that people who got treated early did not have any uh, major setbacks. They continued to survive the disease and do well. And personally, I can tell you, uh, and Warren, can, Warren is a good example, you can attest to this, um, he has survived the disease and functioned really well for many decades now, almost two decades he has survived and done well. And the key thing is to um, be compliant with medications. Take medicines on time, don't overdose, don't underdose, and take it uh, precisely on time. And uh, many of my patients will tell you that 
I spend a majority of my time, in fact, half their visit talking about their drug compliance, how they take their medicine, what time do they take their medicine. If they remain compliant, the possibility of side effects are low, A, and B, early treatment does not disadvantage you in any way. In fact, it will make you more functional, so you're able to do things well. As this is particularly true for young onset Parkinson's patients who are still working, raising families, earning a livelihood, and don't want to retire, and they want to function at the highest level. I'll give you one example. I had a, recently a visit from a gentleman who uh, works um, making cabinets, and uh, somebody in his uh, work thought that um, he was uh, not doing well, and they complained. And uh, as a result of the complaint, um, their, their uh, supervisor then asked uh, that he be reassessed. But in fact, the guy does his job really well, and uh, he's functioning at the very highest level. So uh, we went back and said, this is a myth. He's functioning at his highest level. Why should he be penalized in one way or the other? And we're now um, get, trying to get back to, so that he can just get back to his job. I had a previous employer uh, also uh, bring up this issue to a fireman. I was a young fireman when I was working in uh, Cleveland. Um, who was in his 40s, who came down with Parkinson's and tremor. And he was the only um, uh, employed firefighter in that town. Everybody else was volunteer. And his fire chief basically said, well, you're having tremor, so you can't function. But then we put him through the test that they undergo every uh, six months. They have to carry the hose uh, and put on all their equipment and their helmet and within a short period of time and run 100 feet and uh, that was a theoretical fire. And he did so well that he was scored at the 99th percentile. Um, so I went back and said, you know, why should you put this guy out of work? He's doing really well. Just because he's trembling doesn't mean that he can't do his job. And he actually got his job back, and uh, he uh, did really well, and he continues to do well even now, even though he, I'm not taking care of him. I hear from him every so often. He sends me a Christmas card saying that he got his job back, and he continues to prosper there. So the point I'm trying to say again, and I think Warren brought up a very, very important um, thing, a myth uh, among Parkinson patients that they have a short fuse, they only have a short time to survive the disease. That's not true. Um, if with well-treated uh, patients can survive the disease and have same lifespan as normal people, and there are many studies proving that. So we just have to uh, fight the disease and we have to fight the battle uh, together. Uh, Joe, you have any thoughts uh, before I let Warren come back on? Uh, no, Dr. Sue, that was very enlightening. I appreciate the opportunity of being here. Thank you. Great. And Warren, you have uh, any thoughts? Uh, another thing I could bring up is people that like, sometimes they only see their doctor a few minutes and they'll be on a drug like Azelect, and the doctor would say, just don't eat any red wine or cheese or, you know, don't make sure your diet doesn't include the list of things on this paper. Then they go home and they tell everybody, I can't eat that. I can't eat that. And it's, it's not true. It's, it's, a, uh, it's not being educated enough. Right. And um, if the doctor doesn't, the doctor will do that because he wants to make sure they don't have any side effects, but you really don't have to be that strict. Well, that's not that. only that, not only that, that's an important point that you just brought up, but that those restrictions have been removed especially for Azelect. So Azelect is a monoamino oxidase inhibitor, an enzyme inhibitor. And uh, one of the problems that when you use a traditional MAOA inhibitor is that we have something called the cheese effect. 
So if you eat certain types of food, you can have hypertension. But in this case, this particular case, uh, rasagiline or azelaic, we've actually tested this. Um, so there was a supplemental study to one of the major studies that they did called the Presto study, where we actually deliberately gave cheese to patients who were taking azelaic, and we gave them 50 grams of cheese to see whether they became hypertensive or they got hypertensive crises or not. And we've, we showed that it did, it did not, and it's published, it's already there in the literature that it does not produce the cheese effect with ordinary, regular American diet, up to 50 grams of tyramine is just fine. And most people's American diet does not contain that much of tyramine. In fact, most people's diet don't even have half the amount of tyramine, the substance that is contained in the cheese that interacts with this particular enzyme. So uh, it's a myth. It's that, that requirement has been removed from the, uh, the FDA uh, drug bulletin. It is no longer applicable. So it should not be advised that they should restrict. Now, if you do something extraordinary, like, for example, on the Food Channel, they show the shows in which you are in an eating contest. You're eating, I don't know, uh, 50 eggs or uh, 1,000 pounds of something. Well, of course, then that's a different ballgame. Or if you're eating some special diet, which is very high in tyramine. For example, if you're uh, building muscles and you're drinking some of those protein shakes um, that have high amount of tyramine in it, uh, of course, that could be a problem. Or if you are in certain cultures that eat um, kimchi, for example, or sauerkraut uh, very, very frequently. So uh, Korean culture, for example, they eat kimchi with breakfast, lunch, and dinner sometimes. So if they consume a lot of kimchi. Uh, kimchi is very rich in uh, tyramine. So anyway, for those who don't know what is kimchi, it's a, a fermented cabbage that's frequently used in Korean um, cuisine. And that fermented cabbage does have high amount of tyramine. So if you eat a lot of it, uh, yes, it could be a problem. It could have drug interaction. But normal, regular American diet uh, that most of us consume does not have high amounts of tyramine. Or normal small amounts of wine, like a half a um, glass of wine or something, does not have a problem. Now, if you consume two bottles of wine, yes, you could be in trouble. Uh, but you would be in trouble anyway if you had two bottles of wine. So uh, you, this is uh, not something that we're talking about. So uh, again, I think common, regular diet, it shouldn't be a problem. If you're doing something unusual, yes, talk to your doctor about it. Uh, so you shouldn't be scared. And so this myth is uh, absolutely a myth. You can eat regular American diet and not get into trouble. Okay, and and another, uh, on that same vein, like as a sister's, item the people that won't eat protein right. except when they're ready to go to bed because right. they're, they're told by their doctor or the nurse that cinnamon interacts with protein and it right. won't work for you that's, right. that's another uh right. so this is another common myth and it's wrong uh again unless you eat 20 eggs at the same time which is a very high amount of protein and particularly um aromatic amino acids which is a component of the protein uh, then it may interfere with your levodopa. But normal people don't eat tundi eggs or even 10 eggs at one time. Uh, one egg will not do anything, and regular, comp regular amount of protein will not do anything. You have to be on a very high-protein diet, and most of us, most Americans, don't eat high-protein diets at any time. Uh, so examples of very high-protein would be eating a whole turkey or half a turkey, 
or eating on lots of eggs or some gargantuan amount of protein, uh, yes, then that could be a problem. Or if you drink protein shakes, for example, the bodybuilding shakes that people get, if you drink that, yes, it could interfere with your carbidopa levodopa absorption. But normal, regular amounts of, you know, a small portion of chicken or uh, one egg omelet or two egg omelet or uh, whatever other types of beans and soy and all those things, if you eat regular amounts, it will not interfere with levodopa, uh, carbidopa absorption. Um, now, if it does interfere, you would notice it right away. And in that case, we can work about it. We can think, we can work around it and see how we can uh, solve it. But it's not required that most people, 90% of people with Parkinson's disease, do not have to modify their diet at all. They can just eat regular standard diet. It's not a requirement that they they change their diet or eat protein only at bedtime. Or even buy special meals. By the way, there are special meals that are sold on the internet that are so-called Parkinson's diets, uh, which have uh, low protein during the day and then uh, supper time they eat a higher amount of protein. This is not required. This is not necessary. And many studies have shown that that's not true, uh, that the special diet is not needed, uh, has been shown by many studies. So Warren, that was a very good, a, this, this uh, very good run. Yes, go ahead. I had uh, one other thing that I know you, you worked on Muhammad Ali occasionally. Uh-huh. And uh, there was something I saw with his wife on TV saying that he, he would go to the doctor and he'd say, I'm not going to tell the doctor anything I'm feeling because he's just going to raise my doses of medication. So he would hide his, what's going on with him from his doctor. And the wife said she felt responsible for him losing his voice because somehow, I guess she wanted control over his disease. She talked for him for, for a long period of time, and he, and he lost his voice. Is that, is that true? Or is, it, well, it well, true? Or is that exaggerating? Well, so, well let, so I did have a chance to take care of Muhammad Ali um, when I was a fellow in, in, in Emory University, Atlanta, for a few years. Um, and I did get a chance to talk with him and his wife, Loni. Uh, they're wonderful people, great people. Um, and uh, Muhammad Ali was a great uh, person to be uh, interacting with. He was very cheerful, wonderful guy who would always be in the highest level of enthusiasm for anything and everything that we had to say. But he did feel strongly that um, exercise, uh, which he believed strongly in, um, and prayer would help him uh, much more than medication. So uh, he would often say that he would uh, do exercise a lot, and Lonnie would also say he would exercise a lot. Uh, and again, he's a boxer, he's a professional athlete, so he felt strongly that exercise would get him out of, the, uh, of, of his situation. And also he was a very religious person, so he would do his prayers, uh, and uh, that prayer would help him as well. Well, so we used to have debates about how about taking medicine in addition to doing um, those two things. Uh, and he would often, um, you know, sort of say, yes, I would do it. But then we'll find out later that he didn't actually take his medicine as much. Uh, and he would be not so compliant with this medication. And there were debates about this uh, frequently during visits. Um, I don't know specifically about the voice because um, I, I, I only saw him in his early days. This was in the early 90s. And after that, I moved out of uh, uh, Atlanta. I moved to Cleveland. So I didn't care for him later. So I couldn't tell him when he lost his voice later on. 
But for example, the, the visual picture of what we have of Muhammad Ali is during the Atlanta Olympics where he li- lighted the, the flame of the Olympic t- torch and he, he was the last person to actually dip the f- uh, flame to the Olympic um, quadrant to light it up. Uh, we remember him uh, walking slowly up those stairs uh, with the uh, flame in his hand and uh, showing evidence of tremor. So um, in those days, he certainly could have done better with this medication. Had he taken medicines more compliantly, he would have had less tremor. Uh, so yes, uh, he was not the most compliant patient. However, um, he's not the only one. There are lots of other patients who are not as compliant, uh, who think that just doing exercise or prayer can actually give them the complete relief that they want to seek from the disease. In general, I would say this is by far uh, not true. You cannot control your symptoms without taking medication. There is a true deficiency of dopamine in the brain. And without replacing the dopamine, you really can't uh, make you function at the highest level. So uh, taking medicine and being compliant, taking it exactly on time, plus doing the exercise and adding prior would just be fine. But without doing those things, just doing just exercise and prayer may not be sufficient for uh, people to uh, recover from the disease. So, Warren, I think we covered a bunch of topics. Um, let's, uh, let's close this discussion by just, uh, again, welcoming Joe into our, our uh, podcast. And I'm sure we'll have other things that you would bring up. Um, do you want to talk about what, what, what things has come up uh, that we will be covering in the future podcast? Okay. We're going to be getting a little bit more patient-oriented. We've, we've done a lot of uh, doctor discussion with technical issues. But there's a whole other side of the, uh, the, the people trying to live a normal life and is a way if everybody gets together sort of like a support group and discusses with each other, it could help put things in perspective a little bit. So we're going to try to get more personal and uh, just see how it goes and try to get those people that can't make it to uh, the support group meetings and uh, see what happens. Great. Hey, thanks again. Thanks everybody for listening to the podcast. Um, Have a great evening. Thank you. Bye.